So what does it take to silence you? What might make you become quiet? What sort of threat, real or imagined, would cause you to get quiet, even if speaking up might be the right thing to do? There are people who speak up, some who um, just by personality are more gregarious, more outspoken, more forthright in their, uh, their speaking by nature. Uh, some who are just keenly aware that God is leading in a situation that they need to speak, that his word is giving them instruction here, that, that they need to speak into difficult situations by his grace. Some of us just lack filter sometimes, and so we speak up. But most of us probably land on the side of, of remaining quiet. Uh, largely due to some measure of fear of man, some concern about what people will think about what I say. Uh, even when we should love our neighbor enough to speak truth, we get overly concerned about what they'll think of us. Even when we have truth from Scripture that might apply in a situation, an opinion, something that's different, uh, we may hold back because we're afraid to offend, afraid that someone will get angry, they may not like me, and on and on. Turn to Acts chapter 4, and, and that's what the temptation is here in Acts 4, is to respond to people in a situation when the temptation to be quiet is large. Acts chapter 4, where we are, we're in the midst of Luke's account of a miracle that he first uh, unfolded for us in chapter 3, of Peter and John being used by God to heal a man who had spent his entire life unable to walk. Uh, he was a man who had been relegated for all of his years to begging for survival, being outside the, the temple, on the grounds of the temple, trying to beg, trying to have enough money to sustain himself. And so on the grounds of the temple, Peter and John encounter this man. He begs of them as he does of all who pass by. And, and Peter and John give him something that is far greater than just a simple coin. They offer to him Jesus Christ. They give him the hope that is found in Christ, and he is healed of his physical infirmity, but it's also clear, as we saw last week from Acts 3, that there is a fundamental belief in Jesus, and so there is hope and life and forgiveness of sins as well. That miracle arouses the, the ire of the Jewish religious leaders. They are now fully torn as to what to do, and so in chapter 4, we get into the internal discussions that go on amongst this council of religious leaders. And, and as they speak to one another, one of the things that they say is that this healing was a notable sign that was evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. You see that word evident? I've underlined it there on the, on the slide because it means shining or transparent. This, this miracle is just out there. It, it, it's... It's like the followers of Jesus Christ have just lit a bonfire in the middle of the city, and, and we can't put it out. We can't get people to turn away from it. We can't explain it away. It is just glaring in front of people. This guy was a beggar for years, and so countless people knew him. And the healing now causes a crisis for the Jewish religious leadership. Their, their aim had been to make Jesus of Nazareth a piece of history only, someone who had been crucified and was gone, and now they cannot do that. And so there is now opposition. What begins here in Acts 4, we'll see in earnest when we get to chapter 8 a little bit later on. But, but this is the, the first spark, if you will, in what becomes 
organized opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ and to the preaching of the gospel. And this will rage through the early church. It will go on through the, the church throughout history and even on into today when people still suffer brutally for simply professing faith in Jesus Christ. Persecution will be a key theme that we'll see come in and out of the book of Acts. Those who proclaim the truth being attacked by those who reject the gospel to the point that they are threatening, harming, even killing people for believing in Jesus Christ. About 18 months ago, the British Foreign Secretary commissioned a study of research into religious persecution. The findings that were released last year said that persecution on grounds of religious faith is a global phenomenon, but that the most persecuted group by far, the study found, is Christians. The report said that the persecution of Christians in parts of the world is at near genocide levels. Biblical Christianity, as we see here in Acts chapter 4, has been despised and opposed and attacked from the birth of the church in particular about the exclusiveness of the claim of Jesus Christ. That is the, the, the point of offense that people take, that man's only hope is in Jesus Christ. And Peter does not compromise at all in how he preaches it. We read it last week, and I just want to review it for you again. In Acts chapter 4, verse 11, he says to this council of priests and Sadducees and elders, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The Bible teaches the apostles from the beginning taught that Jesus Christ is man's only hope to be reconciled to his creator, to be reconciled to be with God and to have true peace. Opponents of Christianity see that as an affront, that, that sort of truth claim. Every religion, atheism included, makes truth claims. They make statements about man and God and salvation. Those statements differ. They are all over the map, but they, every religion holds to its own sort of truth claims about those things, and yet Christianity is often deemed as most offensive. We see it again and again. Just this past week, New York City's council president, you may have seen go on up, social media tirade against a Christian relief organization that had come to New York City, set up a field hospital in Central Park, had done all to, to serve New York City and, and patients of coronavirus at the worst possible time. They had been asked to come there by another local hospital, and so they came and served. And instead of expressing gratitude for that kind of service, the council president said, quote, their continued presence is an affront to our values of inclusion. He described New York City as a place that values diversity and compassion for all, even as in this tirade he was bluntly saying these people need to leave. They need to get out of our city. Seems like wild hypocrisy in that, but there is no doubt that throughout history there have been awful things done in the name of Christianity. And yet what is clear here in the book of Acts, in this preaching of the gospel, and what is clear throughout the New Testament letters, is that the proclamation of the gospel is never to be about imposing a religion on other people. That is not how this is done. It is rather a plea. 
It is what we see modeled here by Peter. It is one person who has benefited from the grace of God, who has been blessed by God's grace and, and brought to the point of salvation, now appealing to others to say we are creatures who are accountable to our creator, and the only way to be made right with him is through his son, Jesus Christ. The essence of, of making disciples of Jesus Christ by Jesus' own command is a matter of giving witness. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Giving witness to the truth and trusting God's spirit ultimately to change hearts. It is not a, a, an act of trying to impose something on people. It is offering them Jesus Christ. It is urging them to believe in him. It is telling them the truth. The miracle of healing the man in Acts 3 was, as we've seen, performed for all to see. Some of those who saw it immediately responded by wanting to praise Peter and John. You are the miracle workers. And immediately they are looking at, at them as if there's something special about them. Peter insisted, as we've read already, that this was a miracle that was done by God, by the power of Jesus Christ. It is in the name of Jesus that they do this healing. And so it is faith in Jesus that's the right response. It's believe on Jesus Christ. Believe in his name. That is what healed this man. That is what saved this man. And so Peter urged them to believe in Jesus, to turn to him. And we know that thousands repented and believed. And so the Jewish religious leaders now are having to respond. We know from what we've read so far that, that they sent their guards, their temple guards, out to take Peter and John into custody. They held them overnight. The next morning, they, they begin this sort of interrogation process with Peter and John, no, no doubt in part to intimidate them into silence. It didn't work. Instead, Peter takes this opportunity to preach the gospel and urge these leaders to repent and embrace Jesus as Messiah. If you look with me at verse 13, we'll pick up there this morning, Acts 4, verse 13. Now when they, that is the council of the Jewish leaders, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them, commanded Peter and John, the man, to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Stop there. Verse 13 says that this Jewish council, these elders and priests and Sadducees, one of the things that they recognized was the boldness of Peter and John. This is the first use of this word boldness. It'll come up three times in the passage that we're looking at this morning. The Greek word means freedom in speaking. There is an ease with which they are talking. This, this boldness is not just sort of an in-your-face kind of thing. It is a, a fluid sort of free-speaking, uh, uninhibited, not compromising in speaking what they believe. The Jewish leaders are listening to Peter and John, and that's one of the things that strikes them, is the ease with which Peter and John address them. Here they are, this interrogating council of trained rabbis, of theological scholars, with these two fishermen who are coming before them, and these guys are speaking about theological issues and spiritual matters with complete ease. They have brought them before this tribunal with one agenda, and that is to shut them up. 
That is the whole purpose of bringing them there was to stop this. And yet Peter and John are just entirely uninhibited as they are speaking. They held nothing back. And what annoys the council even more is their awareness that these guys are common fishermen. They are not educated in any way. They hadn't been taught in any rabbinical schools. When verse 13, it says their comment, they perceived they were uneducated common men. It's not saying that they, they, they sort of viewed them as stupid or illiterate. It doesn't mean that. It simply means these priests knew there were no way these guys had ever been trained with the skills that they possessed in order to speak about the topics they were talking about. They're, they're speaking how Peter's addressing them was as impossible for them to explain as was the healing that had started all this. They, they don't know what to do with it. The only explanation that we have in the passage that even the council recognizes, the one that Luke gives us, is there in verse 13 when it says, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. They understood this. This is not a, this is not a compliment from the council as in saying, well, they're special because they've been with Jesus. It wasn't, this wasn't the council saying that Peter and John had some sort of glow that reflected Jesus. What it's saying is they realized as they listened to Peter and John that these guys were indeed very much the followers of Jesus Christ because they were preaching exactly as Jesus Christ had preached. They were preaching what they had been taught from Jesus. They were speaking the things that they had heard from him. In a sense, it was actually the kind of comment we should all be jealous for, that, that people would hear us speak and think that they are hearing the very words of Jesus. And that's their response. These guys are followers of Jesus, and, and, and we are hearing them speak. It, it sounds just like the stuff Jesus used to say. If there's one objection that Christians often use to sort of excuse ourselves from situations and to say, well, I... I can't really share the gospel that actively. It, it, it typically is somewhere along the lines of, I don't know enough. I'm not trained enough. Uh, I, I can't answer people's objections. I don't know all of the answers to the questions. I, I don't have enough theology. Uh, I'm just not sure I could handle that. Listen, it is obvious that Peter and John were not seminary graduates. They had two things that you and I possess. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you possess the very same things that Peter and John possessed. The first is a record of the life and teaching of Jesus Christ. They had the word of God as they had seen it, plus all of the promises that they had already read in the Old Testament. They had this record of the life and teaching of Jesus Christ. And secondly, they had the indwelling presence of Jesus in the person of God's spirit within them. They had the word and they had the spirit, just as we do. They had listened to Jesus, they had seen Jesus, and they are able to, to bring back those things that Jesus had said and done just as Jesus promised his spirit would enable them to do. And they had his presence with them at all times, in all circumstances, through his spirit. Later on in Acts chapter 4, we're going to see the believers quote yet another psalm. We've seen Peter do this already where he's quoted from Joel and he's quoted from the psalms before. It is really clear when you see this again later on in, in, in Acts 4 that Jesus had taught those early believers that God's law and the prophets and the Psalms, the things that we refer to as the Old Testament, that which the, the Jews had read, the scrolls from which they had read, were pointing to the coming Messiah. Therefore, what Jesus was, was teaching them was to read God's word 
to, to delve into God's word, and to, as they do so, to look and see God's plan unfolding, to see God prophesying the coming of the Messiah. Go back and read it, and you will see God displaying his eternal purpose to send a sinless Savior to be the sacrifice for the sins of his people. And that Savior will rise from the dead, and he will be Lord over all. He's encouraging them. Jesus taught them to, to, to look back into the word, and that's what Peter and John rely on. That's what the believers rely on. The, the, the truths promised in the Old Testament and the things now fulfilled in the life of Christ that the apostles were witnesses to. So they read. They read the Old Testament scriptures. They listened to all that Jesus had done as they were taught by the apostles. And then they went forth and they did so in the power of the Holy Spirit. It was not just men who had done reading and, and now were quoting that. They now are going forth and they are speaking in the power of the Spirit. No special schooling, no certain level of certification before they can proclaim the gospel to others. They read, they listened, and they asked God to help them by the power of his Spirit to empower their words. That's why the, the, our, our subtitle for this city, this series, I should say, in Acts, has been Empowered Proclamation That Grows the Church. That's what we see is the Holy Spirit taking this simple proclamation of God's truth and bringing people to life through it by the power of his spirit. That's, that's the essence of Christian boldness, to, to rely on God, to study Jesus, to study what he did and what he taught, to love God supremely, and to love our neighbor as ourself, and out of that love of neighbor to then speak truth to that neighbor, and to believe and to trust that by the power of God's Spirit, he will bring that truth to bear on their hearts, that truth that they are in need of a Savior and that God has given his Son. We lovingly urge people to turn from what they have believed before to embrace Jesus Christ. Now, just because we do that doesn't mean it will always go well. We may not be like. This is where that whole fear of man thing kicks in. And, and this is a, a great example. Because at, at this point, when we've seen Peter preach, so far we've seen thousands coming to faith in Christ. There has been this, this embracing of the gospel. And yet now that same message preached the same manner by Peter that, that God has used to save thousands. He's now standing before a council who, with their arms crossed, are vehemently rejecting everything that he's saying. They are, in, in whatever way possible, trying to dismiss everything that Peter's saying, trying to twist it and contort it and not believe it. The message that saves sinners is also a stumbling block to those who reject Jesus, and that should not stop us from being witnesses. It doesn't thwart Peter and John in this circumstance. They continue to proclaim. And so at this moment now, we've read that the Jewish leaders send Peter and John and the man who's been healed out of the room. And then verse 16 raises that question, what do we do with these guys? Everybody's seen this. And so verse 17, here's, here's what they decide. In order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them, bring them back in the room, and they charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. The council's 
hands are tied. There's nothing they can do to stop the apostles in terms of punishment except intimidate them. We can't deny what we've seen, and so therefore their solution is we will threaten them. And so in verse 17, when it says that they all agreed to warn them, let us warn them to speak, that word for warn means to menace or to threaten. It is to say you are in danger if you continue down this path. You you keep doing this and you will be in trouble. In fact, verse 21, when it says that they further threatened them, Peter and John respond to their initial threats and say, I'm sorry, we're going to continue to speak. And so they further threaten them. It's the same Greek word with a, a little prefix put on that intensifies it. It's as if they, they said it louder if they could. They, they threatened them all the more. They intensified their threats. They really threatened them and tried to warn them to stop. We don't have every word of of dialogue that went on in that room, particularly during that that point when Peter and John are out of the room. We would assume that that has come to Luke, perhaps through Paul, who may have been present, perhaps through Gamaliel, who we'll meet in chapter 5, or Nicodemus, or Joseph of Arimathea, one of these other men who have been involved in these sorts of councils, but who we see as believers in Jesus Christ. But what we, we do know is that they threatened these men. They intensely threatened them. We don't know all they said, but the threats were severe, perhaps reminding them of what had happened just two months earlier, of what had happened to their leader, of what they had done to Jesus. And in fact, the threat is to the point of don't make sound about him. That's verse 18 when it says they call them and charge them not to speak or teach at all. The the Greek word there for speak is different than the one in verse 20. When, when Peter and John say, well, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. The one in verse 20 is the common word. We, we can't help but talk about Jesus. The one in verse 18 is more of the idea of a, of a sound. When it says they charged them not to speak or teach, that word is, is the idea of, of just uttering a note about Jesus. They, they are essentially saying, you make another peep about this Jesus and you're in trouble. We are going to come after you if we hear any more about Jesus. Peter and John's answer that we read in verses 19 and 20 is one you and I need to know. It's one I want to encourage you to memorize because I think it's one we need to go back to the next time that we are at all internally sort of tempted to back down, that we are at all internally sort of anxious with fear and and wondering if somebody's going to like us or not because of what we say about Jesus. Their answer to this Jewish council that has just threatened, has menaced them is, we cannot help but talk about Jesus. We, we cannot stop talking about Jesus. In, in, in fact, it's, it's literally a double negative in the Greek. We are not able to not speak about what we've seen and heard. This is as emphatic a response as Peter can give at this point to say, I, I want you to be absolutely clear when you hear me in this. We can't stop talking about Jesus no matter what you say. We will speak about him. But then Peter does something really interesting, and he says the real question here is not whether or not we're going to speak. The real question is on you. It's what you're going to do with what you've seen and heard. The the, the real challenge here is you need to decide now. You're telling us to stop. Actually, you need to think about that because we've told you that this is God who is working in the power of Jesus Christ. And so... You now need to decide. You've seen this for yourselves. You know it's not magic or a trick or something that you can explain away, because if it was, you would have done that already. This is a work of God 
to prove that Jesus Christ is who he said he was, even when you rejected him. And so we're going to keep talking, but the real question is, will you keep claiming that God must be silenced? What, what will you do with this? When, when we speak about the truth, about who Jesus is, and, and the heart of the gospel and what Jesus has done, it's not we or Jesus that are on trial. We get nervous that way in, in, in that we sort of feel like we are the ones with the glaring spotlight on us. The world wants us to believe that proclaiming Jesus means we're the ones who are on trial, just as the religious leaders wanted Peter and John to believe in Acts chapter 4. You're the ones being interrogated. You're the ones being questioned in this circumstance. And yet the reality is what these apostles knew is they were standing before the creator of all the earth, and these unbelievers now are in God's court. And what they have proclaimed is now putting these men on trial. You want to dismiss this? And you want to reject your creator and the salvation he offers? That's, that's entirely up to you. You want to, you want to silence this? That's, that's up to you. But understand, you're standing before God as you do this because it won't stop us from telling you about him. Verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. This passage is so rich. Peter and John now have left the council. They have been dismissed and threatened and dismissed, and they now return to the gathering of believers. When verse 23 says they return to their friends, it's the same word as in John 1.11 when it says Jesus came to his own. These are not just casual acquaintances. These are their people. These are their own. They are returning to the community where they are loved and where they are a part of. This is a, a sweet word that Luke uses here to remind us of what it is we belong to and who we identify with. We are part of a community of believers that share an intimate bond in Jesus Christ. And so they return to their own and they begin to tell them what the priests and the elders have said. And the collective response of the believers as they are gathered in this place is one thing. It is prayer. All together, they cry out to God. All together, they pray. I don't think our English translations, ESV and even others, do justice to verse 24. When it says they lifted their voices together to God... First of all, the noun there for voices is singular. So it really is they all, plural, all of them, lifted their voice. It's the idea of showing this, this unison. And in unison, they cried out to the sovereign God of the universe. With one voice, they all spoke. 
In fact, to, to capture the, the unified nature of this, where the ESV says they did it together, it's really the Greek for like-minded. It is the idea that they, with one devotion, and that's where the phrase starts, with one devotion, they all lifted their singular voice. It's not that they just happened to, to all be together in the physical sense. They were all in the same place at the same time, which simply what we would long to do is just at least just be together it's not just that, but it is the fact that they were similarly devoted in that moment to praying. They were joined. They were united in like-mindedness. And so it's speaking of a, a unified devotion to prayer. The same thing back in chapter 1, verse 14, says that they had this, this like-minded devotion to praying together. There is a work of God here through his spirit that is uniting his people together in prayer. They are of the same purpose and the same mind in their response to the threat of intimidation. They have just been told this is now the, the first serious warning from the Jewish leaders who had had Jesus crucified, now saying to the leaders, to the apostles, we are coming after you if you continue to speak. And their response is not to try to, to take it head on by themselves. They don't sit and call a council and say, well, we got to figure out a plan here and we got to scheme through this and respond together. They immediately recognize they are utterly helpless on their own and they fall to their knees and they cry out to God and they plead for help. The reality of the threat doesn't enrage them. They don't get all angry about it and, and, and seek to lash back. It doesn't incite them to respond in kind. Rather, it drives them to prayer, unified prayer. And the nature of the prayer is fascinating. When we see how they began this prayer, think again about the circumstances. Consider that what's happening. Their leaders, Peter and John, have just stood before the highest Jewish governing body that is in the land at this point. Obviously, the Roman government is over all of this, but as far as a Jewish council of leaders, this is the highest governing body, and they have just been told by that governing body, you are not to, to make a sound about Jesus. And so what do they do? They immediately declare two essential truths about Jesus that you and I need to run to and hide in. The first one is God rules. When they heard this, verse 24, they lifted their voices to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in it. First thing that they confess is, God, we belong to you. You are the maker of heaven and earth and the seas and everything that's in it. You are sovereign. That word sovereign, we've said this before, is where we get our English word despot. Doesn't mean a brutal dictator, but it, it rather carries the idea that this is one who is completely in charge. God rules. He has full and final authority. So when they say sovereign Lord, they are declaring you ultimately are the one who is in control here. We've just been before the, the highest governing body that we face. And you are the one who rules. And second, then, they declare their belief that the threats are precisely what God had said would happen. They're, they're not only confessing that he is sovereign because he has made all things, but they're confessing his sovereignty in the events that they are currently in. In the midst of threats and intimidation, what they're saying here is even this siege that we are now under is part of your plan. And, and they go back to the Psalms to prove that. The fact that the work of God 
through the believing community is already facing severe opposition is exactly what God had promised. And for that, they go back a thousand years to David in Psalm 2, and they speak God's word back to him and say, why do the nations rage against the Lord and his anointed one? Well, this is exactly what is happening. The fact that the nations rage that they rage against the one who was anointed that is now known to be Jesus was revealed a thousand years earlier. And so the rulers, all the Gentile leaders, and they go on in verse 27 to, to name Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles, and then they add what is most remarkable and the peoples of Israel. The fact that they all conspired against God's servant is just as you said would happen. They are raging just as you said would happen. Feudal. Raging. That's, that's the message of Psalm chapter 2. They rage and, and God is on his throne in heaven. God is sovereign and it is utterly futile what they are doing. But they are doing nonetheless exactly what God had designed. And because we know these things are according to God's plan, we should not be shaken by them. That's, that's how they respond. They recite God's word from Psalm 2. And they are assured by that, and they remember how it was fulfilled in the life of Jesus, God's anointed one. And so the rage of the nations, even the rage of the Jewish leaders, is not going to cause them to shut up or panic, because it is entirely according to the plan of the sovereign Lord, who made heaven and earth and the seas and everything in them. Instead, having confessed those truths, God rules and therefore, even this hostility is under the rule of God and is something that, in fact, God has promised. They then are enabled to lift up their petitions in prayer. And there are two here, two requests that they make to God. God, we believe in your rule. And in this moment of threat, here's the first one. See this. Look again at uh, verse 29. They've just declared God's sovereignty over all of this, his predestining this plan, his, his anointing of all of this. And then verse 29, and now, Lord, look upon their threats. The community of believers now under threat is confessing, God, see this. We rest fully in you. You see these evil threats. You who are the creator and who are sovereign and who has predestined all this, we can take Comfort in knowing that you see this. These threats are unjust. They are being done by people who claim in their heart to be leaders of worshiping God, and they are wrong and hypocritical. And essentially, they're saying, God, take note of these things. See these. This is reminiscent of, of Exodus, right? And, and the Jewish people are in slavery in Egypt. In Exodus 2.25, God saw the people of Israel, and God knew that's God's assurance. I see. And if the sovereign God sees, we can rest in that. We can know that, that we are still called to be faithful, to do what we are called to do. And, and that's what they're going to go on to pray and asking for boldness. But we can also take great comfort in saying, Lord, see this. See their threats. I want to suggest to you that, that we have seen a modern illustration of that this week. One of the, the news stories that has, has dominated the headlines, filled the headlines, is about a terrible shooting death in Georgia. And as the people of God, we, we grieve 
because we know that all life is made in the image of God and we are sorrowful, but the tragedy itself is compounded by, by the seeming injustice of it all, that those who were in authority did not believe that anything had even happened there that was worthy of pressing charges over. The fact that a, that a video surfaces about the case that shows what happens, at least gives one view of it, should be a reminder to us that God looks upon these things, that our God sees, that our God in his providence is sovereign, and when we plead for him to look on injustice, God works. God brings to light evil. God brings to light man's injustice. And God in his providence can be trusted. This prayer is a handing off, if you will, of rage and retribution, and it is instead saying, God, you look on this. You who, you who are able to respond in perfect justice, you respond. Secondly, they pray, Lord, please grant us your servant's boldness to keep us speaking the truth. These are ethnic Jews who are Roman citizens, but who are now declaring themselves to be slaves of Christ. We must not undersell the term that so often in our English translations is servant, it is slave. They are saying, Lord, Master, we are pleading with you that you would, by your Spirit's power, give us boldness, that you would stretch out your hand, that you would exercise power through us, your servants, your slaves, so that we would speak freely and not shrink back or compromise. There's that word boldness again. Give us that, that free speaking so that we would continue to talk without at all cowering back. The only difference between the word boldness here in this prayer at the end of verse 29 and the boldness that the council observed in verse 13 when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, the only difference in the words is that here in verse 29 it's preceded by a little preposition that means all or whole. Lord, give us all of the boldness that we need. Give us every element of boldness that you can give us. Give us a full measure of it so that we might speak your truth. I, I would remind you as we read this, this is not a prayer that we should take lightly. There were no doubt people in that room who prayed this prayer who would experience suffering, who would go through fiery tests of their faith as a consequence of what began here. They actually were, were in a situation where their rulers were saying, we, we're going to get you if you keep doing this, and they would, they would live out their word. And there would be people in this room who boldly and in a united way said, Lord, Master, give your servants the ability to continue to speak your word with boldness, who would actually experience suffering and persecution because they would not turn from Jesus Christ. They prayed this in the face of a real and imminent threat, and God, in his mercy, answered their prayer. It says that God poured boldness into them. His spirit was at work in them. The room was shaken. They were filled with the spirit. They continued to speak the word of God freely and with confidence. They who had just been, their leaders just been told, you shut up, don't you make a peep about him, or we're going to come after you. And, and now this community of believers saying, you can't stop this. We are going to proclaim Christ. God, give us boldness to do this. We're going 
look for a way to apply this in the life of our church this week. Uh, Jeremy Smith, one of our elders, is, is working on just some times together that we can do corporately. Those who want to gather for prayer, it'd be by Zoom. Uh, it'll be online. But just a, some opportunities we want to give to apply this, that we would come together with one voice asking God to help us proclaim his truth. Uh, the 17th century British pastor John Flavel was quoting Jesus from John 16 when Jesus says that there will be trials and tribulations. In fact, John 16, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Flavel writes this, the way to heaven lies through much tribulation. All our troubles are not over when we are saved by Christ. Nay, then commonly our greatest sorrows begin. Nor are we to expect freedom from our troubles until harbored in heaven. That is why, like the early church, we, we must learn to raise our voices to the sovereign creator of the universe and to say, Lord, we, we face opposition, perhaps persecution, injustice. Lord, look on these things, but give to your servants boldness. May your spirit accomplish through us the work of proclaiming Jesus Christ and bringing people to the sweet knowledge of him as Savior. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the anointed one. You are the one that David spoke of when he said, why are the nations raging against God's anointed one? Why would the leaders conspire against this one who has come, who is God's servant, who is God's chosen one? And yet they do. As David said in Psalm 2, and as the apostles were confident of it from their reading of that psalm, you are on your throne, unmoved by the threats of the world, by the injustice of those around us. You are unshaken by these things. In fact, you are very much the ruler who is in control. And so help us, God, as your people, to be filled with boldness, Help us to pray this prayer like the early church did. That, God, you would help us to be filled with a freeness in our speech. An, an uncompromising looseness in our ability, willingness to go ahead and talk about Christ and the gospel and people's need of a Savior. That's not constrained by fear. That's not covered up by any temptation to to compromise. Help us this week, whatever opportunities you grant to us, to be bold in Christ, knowing that you are our sovereign and you rule. Pray that if there's any who are listening to this who are not trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior, that they would see in this boldness in proclamation 2,000 years ago, still in the life of the church, this boldness in proclamation, not a not a sense of trying to intimidate people or threaten them in any way, but rather that they would hear through us, through your word, the gracious appeal of the gospel that calls sinners to find hope and forgiveness in Christ and in his death and resurrection. Thank you for that hope that we have in Christ. Thank you for the power that we have through your spirit. Enable us to live in those things this week. In Jesus' name we pray.